internet, my name is Walter Ciades Fedchuk, and welcome to the triumphant return of the Prodigal Podcast, the Rough Dress Podcast, with me for the first time, other than one little special election podcast, uh, for the first time in over four years, my good friend and podcast co-host, Chase Redshirt King Wassener. Chase, how are you doing today on this beautiful fall day? Oh, it's good to be back, man. I We did reunite to join our forces for good in an attempt to tell David Perdue to go fuck himself. And I think that was successful, but I think this will be a lot more fun. Uh, I, I haven't gone by Redshirt King in a long time. I'm realizing now uh, that I've almost abdicated the throne. Can you do that with a nickname? Can, I don't I don't think that that's something you get to choose usually. No, usually it's uh, usually a nickname is based on what other people like to call you and unless you tell them outright, "Hey, I don't want to be called Smurf anymore." Uh, they're going to keep calling you Smurf. Or maybe I'm just projecting. I I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know what nickname you could possibly be talking about, Chase. <laughs> Oh man, I, I'm excited to be back. I'm excited to talk about a film that uh, I was very excited to see uh, ever since it was announced, and then the world got a little weird, and it's been it's been a while since we've been able to get back to the theaters. But it sure is nice that movies can exist again. Uh, I do enjoy the thing for sure. Yeah, so for half the time that we've been off the air, uh, as many of you all have been experiencing, we've been underneath the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Movie theaters closed. uh, Life changed for probably the rest of our lifetimes. Uh, Just incredible death and mishandling by everyone involved. Uh, I had to think about the last time that I went and saw a movie in theaters And luckily, when I went into my handy-dandy name-redacted website to order tickets to go see the movie we're going to talk about, uh, it showed me the last movie that I went to see in theaters. Chase, would you like to just take a guess what that movie may have been? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I mean, Spider-Man Far From Home might be it for me, which would be very disappointing. But I I don't know. What, What is it? So let's see. Far From Home release date was... That was July 2nd of 2019. Yep, July 2nd, 2019. Uh, Mine is going to be... I am disappointed to say it was Rise of Skywalker. Oh, no. Oh, you poor thing. Yep. The last movie I got to see in movie theaters was Rise of Skywalker... Uh, one of the friends that I went with had actually seen it, I want to say, like, Christmas weekend, and uh, wanted to come just because he wanted to see my reaction and my brother's reaction. Because uh, we went with a group of, like, you know, six or seven people. And um, let's just say there was a lot of hysterical laughing in the, oh, no, what did they do to my boy uh, sense <laughs> of the word. So I was very happy to go back to the theaters and watch uh, a movie that is remarkably better um, much yes. more entertaining, better written, just across the board. Uh, a very enjoyable theater experience. Uh, and we will, uh, in case you are unable to read titles of podcasts, uh, it was Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. And boy, oh boy, was this a fun movie. Um, but before we like get into the actual discussion of like the movie and what we thought, Chase... How did it feel to like actually go back to a theater since it was, you know, so long for you? It's weird, man. I, I, I'm still at this point when it comes to the pandemic where being out in condensed inside public places is got, it's just got a little bit of anxiety for me. I, I'm, it's better than it was. And certainly I'm fortunate enough to be living in Los Angeles now. Uh, where we're doing pretty well, all things considered. Um, but it's it's kind of surreal it just to be back and seeing the big screen and being able to take it all in. It's a lot of fun, I'll say that. I, I think that it's 
it was very easy before the pandemic to have conversations like, oh man, you know, TVs at home are so good nowadays. Do we really need to be spending the amount of money that movie theater tickets cost just to see it in cinema? And my answer now is yes, yes, I do, actually. It's real cool to go somewhere to watch the thing and the screen's even bigger and the sound is probably better than what I've got. And it's just going out and doing something. I, I, I found I, I have an appreciation for the experience that perhaps the last time we were talking about films, uh, I had taken for granted. Uh, it's nice. It's nice to be back, but it is still feeling just a little weird. I, I, I don't think I can just justify it for any movie, but for something like this, I felt like it was worth a shot. What about you? I, I would have to 100% agree with you. I think I've always sort of had... Uh, I've had a mindset for probably, you know, five or six years now that there are certain movies that just uh, are better on a big screen. Um, I distinctly remember back, you know, previous episodes of the podcast we had done... I did a double feature where we did um, uh, Spider-Man Homecoming and then we did Baby Driver. And I want to yes. say right around that time... Uh, I'd also gone to the theater and saw The Revenant, the Leonardo DiCaprio Oscar bait movie. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed the movie. It was a good movie. But I have never been more disappointed in spending almost $30 to watch a movie. Um, it, like I said, it was good. It was well written. It was well acted. But to me, it was not something that was necessary to watch on this giant big screen with the, the Dolby surround sound and all that jazz. And I know Ebert and Robert are probably, you know, rolling in their graves that I would say something so sacrilege. But seeing a superhero movie or seeing, uh, you know, Fast and the Furious movie, you and I went and saw Hobbs and Shaw right before I uh, moved away from Vegas. Like, those kinds of movies, I think, translate so much better into the movie theater format because of the, the the bombacity of it how large it's supposed to be and those junk food type movies you have you almost have to see them in the theater to really understand everything that the director is trying to fit in there all the explosions all the sound it helps the nuance of like the quieter scene sticks out a lot more when you're not just being blasted in your eardrums by by the bass and and the the sound um so yeah i was i was really excited um to to finally go to the movies um my girlfriend and i had just started dating in october prior to the pandemic so because of the pandemic we had actually never had a movie date so even though shang chi might not have been like the first movie that she would pick out to be like yes i want to see this in theaters it was it was a really nice experience and I would say being in the theater itself, we went uh, to a nine o'clock showing on a Saturday night, so I expected it to kind of be a little bit busier, um, even though you know we didn't go opening weekend or anything like that. Um, I was like pleasantly surprised in that there actually were not a lot of people in our theater, so um, I wasn't at any, I didn't at any point feel like unsafe that there was a huge mass of people i mean in fact like a couple days after that i went to a foo fighters concert that was an outdoor venue where i felt a lot less comfortable at um just because of how packed everyone was um mm -hmm. and kind of said to her afterwards i'm like cool i'm good with going to outside amphitheater shows for a while um just because yeah sure it required a negative test or a you know negative or a you know vaccination card or whatever but still just being around that many people in such a tight space still still felt uncomfortable um in a way that you know luckily i didn't have to experience while uh, while at the movie theater right yeah and i think that's just going to be the nature of the beast for a little bit here it turns out uh pandemics a uh, lot of changes to our day-to-day -day life that people get used to and adjusting back to it can be hard I think we'll get there. I, I think that, like, you know, there are some promising signs as far as, like, how well Shang-Chi did at the box office that people are willing to take that risk over something that they think is worth it. And I do think that if you're able to do so safely and you've gotten the vaccine, which I sure hope anybody listening to this 
who is capable of doing so has done so, um, I, I think it can be, uh, it, it's a good starting point, I find, because it's, you know, you're still, even in a, a more packed movie theater, you still have your own space and you're still taking it in um, without the same kind of uh, moving of bodies that makes you constantly aware of how packed you are and how things can spread after that's been hammered into our heads for so long, you know? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I think part of it's been, we had the sort of the summer, you know, I got vaccinated before mother's day. That was like a prerequisite. My mom wanted all of us to be together for mother's day. So got the vaccines, got that all taken care of. And then sort of over the summer, you got to kind of experiment with what you felt comfortable with, uh, you know, going outside to outdoor art festivals or things like that. And, and it's about finding that happy medium for you. Um, I know my girlfriend and I are a bit worried now going into winter if there are spikes of whether it's COVID or just normal flu or that type of stuff, how active we're going to be in our, uh, you know, weekend activities. And are we going to be going to movies every weekend? Are we going to start doing some of the traditional date stuff that we haven't gotten to do like bowling or you know, laser tag or whatever. Um, so it just kind of comes down to your comfort level. And I think both of us have now gotten to a point where we are kind of comfortable to, to get back into the theater, which I think we're both excited for because that means, you know, we can come back and we can, you know, talk about these movies and pick out these movies that we're really interested in and, and go see them the way they are were meant to be uh, seen. Uh, with that being said, Chase, what were some of your expectations for Shang-Chi and did it actually like live up to what you sort of built in your head? So I was very excited going into this film for a couple of reasons. I, I think uh, Dustin Credden uh, is a fascinating director choice. Um, he hasn't done a lot. Um, you know, it's mostly been smaller films like Just Mercy, The Shack, I Am Not a Hipster. Um, but he's always been a little bit weird uh, and he's always been a little bit interesting. Um, I, I thought that, you know, having a hard focus on these, uh, you know, Asian characters and that background is something that we haven't seen as much of. And when uh, when Marvel's tried it in the past with things like Iron Fist, it didn't quite work out. But this was a, a team that I, I felt had a little bit more confidence behind them. And with people like, you know, Simu Liu. Uh, taking over in, in leading spots, I, I had reason to believe that it would be good. Um, it also does the thing that I think Marvel films have to do to a certain extent, which is move away from the original source material uh, to create something that it makes sense for film first and foremost, which they were always going to have to do with Shang-Chi because the origins of Shang-Chi, it's not great. A uh, lot of racial stereotypes that are really uncomfortable in the light of the modern world. And so it meant that they would have to do something that would adjust from that and shift from that. Uh, and so what they did, I think, was really fun. Uh, I, I think it stuck to some of the more mystical elements that the Shang-Chi character has always had, but did so in a way that, you know, felt much more kind of in line with what we've seen from you know, more traditional Chinese films in the past and uh, did so in a way that felt respectful rather than just, you know, the thing but a Marvel spin, which I think would have been an easy trap to run into. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I, I think that it speaks a lot to Marvel's willingness with both this film and th films like Eternals. It's going to be directed by Chloe Zhao Sam Raimi coming back for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Like, we're getting more interesting directors taking a shot at some of these characters that otherwise haven't gotten a lot of screen time before. And I think that that in general just creates for more interesting films. So I'm glad to see it. So I'm very glad that you brought up the, the mysticism aspect of things because I very much enjoyed the Marvel Netflix series, uh, all of them. I thought I enjoyed them. I won't say I liked all of them because Iron Fist and Defenders were kind of a mess. And even uh, season two of Daredevil, when they weren't focusing on the Punisher aspect of things, when they were focusing on the mysticism Electra story arc, I thought were was very hit and miss across the board. 
Um, so going into Shang-Chi, I know like nothing about the background of the character. I have just gone into like this or like Captain Marvel and some of the other superhero movies, um, not being a huge comic guy is like, I want to see this story. I don't know the background. Teach me about this character. And the way that they handled mysticism in Shang-Chi was way better than anything they did in the Netflix series. It wasn't anything convoluted. It was very, very straightforward of like, hey, there's this mystical artifact that, that you know, the dad has, and he got it, and he was a dictator and a, a warlord and all these things, and, it, you know, the powers were semi-straightforward of what, you know, what he could do with it, and he trained up this, like, this military, an army of, like, ninja-style warriors, and it was all very straightforward plot points that, you know, as someone who doesn't know the character, I could get behind and be like, all right, cool, we do martial arts, we've got some, um, you know, some, like, telekinetic energy coming out of these things, you could throw the rings, it was all very straightforward, and then, spoiler alert, I guess I should have said that at the beginning, we are going to talk some spoiler stuff, so if you haven't seen the movie and want to, maybe pause here, go see it, we'll go wait do for, it. like, it's good. We'll, it's we'll wait film. for, like, three and a half, four hours for you to go to a movie theater and watch it, you can hit pause, we, we aren't going to, you know, we aren't going to be mad at you for doing that. Perfect. Now that you've seen the theater, uh, seen it in theaters, wonderful. We can get to the spoiler topics. The way they describe, like, the uh, Zhu Wenwu and his journey of trying to rescue his, his beloved is very straightforward. It's behind a door. This door is hidden in a secret plane guarded by a magic maze. I don't, like, you can't screw that up. That's so simple. And, and done in such a straightforward, nuanced way that I can't get confused. I can't lose it. I don't have to worry about, like, okay, so they have to have a jar, and they put the body in the jar, but then they have to do some other stuff to the jar, and then they come back, but when they come back, they don't have their memories, and... Oh, God, the, the Netflix mysticism stuff just, just drives me crazy. So... As a viewer, I really was happy that that was such a straightforward plot point that they could tell us. And like, hey, how do you defeat the demons? Oh, you got to use these dragon scale weapons. Like, I can't get lost there. That's that's so simple. I It, it is funny because, you know, the mysticism angle is one that... It's the whole reason that the film is not allowed to be viewed in China right now. It is still uh, not released over there because... Uh, Chinese critics pointed out the uh, origins of the character were pretty darn racist and the mystical elements were things that really concerned a lot of like native uh, Chinese regulators. Um, I think that there's that ultimately uh, Marvel uh, did the thing that is both profitable and the right thing to do, which is they created a character that removed all of those issues entirely. The, the Fu Manchu character that used to be Shang-Chi's dad is gone, and what we got with Zhu Wu is a much more fully fleshed out, much more uh, tragic character, and one that's e more easily to get behind um, as a driving force throughout this film. I, I think that the, the key here, and it's the same thing done I think a little bit better than even it was done in Doctor Strange just this idea of like look this exists and there are people who know about it that can explain it to you pretty easily but our main character doesn't and so the main character is going to get an explanation that the rest of us can all get behind and once you get it you can go and it works in this case uh, because the characters are engaging enough and the relationships between all of them interesting enough that we don't need to be distracted by all of these superfluous details about exactly how things are going to come together in the end. Uh, it turns out uh, the giant dragon that gets revived from Shang-Chi creates for a really fun fight at the end, and, and it's a really... Uh, visually engaging spectacle that they are able to bring forth once they get to that hidden village in the maze. And the maze sequence as well, also very fun. Um, but it's it's all done in such a way where 
the mysticism is a tool through which this story can be told and the story is good and the story has a lot of heart and the story is one that I think everyone can relate to. Um, this is not a film in which I feel like you need to have some deep understanding of either Chinese cinema or some of the background elements that lead to the, the things that are played around with here. Um, it, it's, it's accessible. And which is something I was worried about, given that like now we're getting Marvel shows in house that are all now canon. This is something that concerned me because I haven't kept in touch with the shows, but it all works, and it works because the story, when you boil it down, is a human story and a really well told one. Well, we'll get to the the Marvel shows in a minute because I know in pre call we discussed how you have not seen them yet and. Uh, we'll we'll talk about them just kind of at the the end here, along with some more just like housekeeping stuff about the Marvel universe as a whole. Um, I like that you bring it bring up the story and about how Wenwu is almost relatable, even though he's he's the villain. That there is something very straightforward and easy to connect to about the sort of monster to man back to monster kind of story when it comes to the loss of a loved one and you know i'm sure many of us that have lost loved ones have had those moments of their uh, of like if there was a way to bring this person back would i take it what would i do to bring them back into my life and i really like the sort of the kind of foil that you have between wenwu and sean of one is accepted that she's gone, that nothing's bringing her back, and one has not. However, both of them have fairly, I'll say barely toxic kind of reactions to those feelings of how to handle things. You know, when Wu is desperate to, uh, you know, find a way to bring her back and pouring over all these texts and, you know, falls prey to an evil force that is preying upon these feelings of loss and desperation whereas sean runs away and while they never really say like he's purposely running away from the feelings of loss of his mother it is there you can tell that he is throughout the movie it's this topic of running away from your destiny or who you are because Embracing that then also means embracing and dealing with this loss of a loved one. And not only that, but now the abandonment of your sister who has to survive with the consequences of those actions. And while they never are like when Wu, you know, like abuses her, beats her up or anything, it's more of a, it's an abandonment. It's another abandonment. It's a, you exist, but I can't look you in the eye because you remind me of her. Uh, Which I think is, like, is very poetic then in how the movie ends and how it's the person who accepts reality and uh, accepts those feelings and just embraces them that is successful in Sean versus the person who can't accept reality and cannot even listen to someone else saying, hey, isn't it weird that there's a voice telling you you can have exactly what you want. All you have to do is this one little thing that you don't really know anything about. It is, I I do love the relationship with Sean and his sister, Zhiling, for a couple different reasons, right? I, I mean, first of all, the fact that one of them has taken on a fully Americanized name and the other one maintaining that uh, connection to their heritage, I, I think immediately jumps off the page of like, oh, okay, they, they've, they're coming from different worlds here, uh, even though uh, you know, they share this kind of common trauma. And I, and I think uh, anyone who has uh, both a sibling and had a, a period in their childhood that they can describe as rough. It doesn't even need to be the loss of a parent, but there's this idea, right, that you guys have to kind of lean on each other a little bit. You're a team. 
Uh, and it can be hard to do that when you're a kid because as a kid you don't recognize when certain behaviors are being taken out on you as being not about you. Um, and, and there's a really great kind of angle on that of, of Sean not realizing how he straight up abandoned his sister and what that would mean for her ability to develop emotionally. You know, she also hardens herself after her mom's death, but instead of, you know, disappearing from it all, it's like, well, fuck everyone. I'm going to do my own thing because no one is going to be there for me. And so I think seeing these three different ways of dealing with loss um, really do a great job of, of highlighting the humanity in this situation, right? Everyone involved ultimately should be on the same side. They all miss their mom. They all wish that things had been better. Uh, the dad is so blinded by his past that he forces both of his children into roles that they don't want and aren't comfortable with. But, you know, in a better world, this is a story in which their dad figures it out, they all come back together, and they're able to, to come together for one last big mission to, you know, do right by their mom. And it, it's a tragedy, uh, despite everything about uh, Wen Wu's past. And we know that before he met... Um, this woman, who he uh, was and, and how uh, he treated others. Um, and so even with that, uh, we can find this path forward that we just know as an audience is impossible because it requires letting go of something that this character can't let go. And and seeing Sean and, and Jiling both kind of come into their own to grow past that and how they're able to have that mirror their growth and power level as well. It's all really tightly done. Um, and they deserve a lot of credit for taking on uh, some really difficult interpersonal relationships and doing it in a way that both felt authentic and managed to work without taking over what is still ultimately a superhero film in which spectacle is going to reign to a certain extent. Did you think for a moment when the maze, uh, the reveal of the map of how to get through the maze happened, did you think for a moment that maybe the, that um, Sean and Xiling were going to work with Wen Wu and that the betrayal then wouldn't happen until like later in the film? Or were you still on like, both of them are not on board with this plan and are going to shun their father and then ultimately like, the plot continues as it what it was. I think that the question for me when I saw the maze reveal itself was simply, is he right? Like, I, I felt like there was never going to be a period in which Jiling uh, and, and Sean were going to be able to be on his side because there was too much bad blood without the work towards forgiveness. And they were literally captured, nearly died, on two different occasions in Sean's case, uh, being brought back here. So I never saw that, but there was a moment there where I'm like, oh, is this going to be a film in which, you know, these two siblings have to try to save their mom before their dad can get there and the side effects therein. And I'm really glad they didn't go that way. I I'm glad that it ultimately ended up being like, no, we're not bringing people back from the dead yet a thing that comics are wont to do and we have gotten away with not really doing so far and I hope we don't do for a good amount of time. Well, honestly, I, I, I think that death is important uh, in terms of storytelling and what it does for characters. And so learning, no, 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 we're not going to hit the undo button on this. This is not in play. This is about the desire for easy answers when the world gives you none that I think is just really smart. Um, that's where I had been led. Did you, did you think that this was going to be uh, the three of them coming together? I, I would say there was for like the slimmest moment that, that maybe they weren't going to cast Wen Wu as like the ultimate villain, that he was sort of just this misguided soul and that he was 
ultimately, you know, when he gets to, when he, he gets to the end of the journey, when he gets to the moment where he has to open the door or something, that there was going to be something else there that would then tip off, hey, what you're doing is evil or will we'll have a consequence that you don't understand. And I really thought that that was sort of going to be the moment of, well, I'm going to choose to bring back my wife no matter the cost and Shang and Jai Ling were going to be like, no, wait, it's not worth it. Uh, mm-hmm. Look at how, you know, just the three of us together, look at how we've, we've come back together as a family and mom wouldn't want us to, you know, destroy the world just to bring her back. Um, I did think for a moment that that was sort of the story they were going to tell, but was very pleasantly surprised when that wasn't sort of the, e- they didn't take the easy route. They took the both of them have lived without their mother and father for so many years that uh, you're a stranger to me. Why would I agree to do this? And mom's gone. Why would I ever think about bringing her back? So I was very happy that that was the avenue that they took because they led us to the best part other than the dragon in this movie. Ben Kingsley returning (laughs) as the Mandarin. I was so excited when he popped up. And my girlfriend has not really watched much of the rest of the Marvel movies. Um, she's watched the Marvel shows with me, but hasn't watched many of the movies. So I was like laughing for like a good five minutes and had to quietly explain to her like, oh, he's from a different movie. I'll explain it to you afterwards. It's so good. I, I understand. Perfect. Like there were some people who had a really hard time with Iron Man 3. I honestly enjoyed it. It's my favorite of the three Iron Man films, though I know that that is a controversial take. It's okay to be wrong. But the thing that works about his portrayal of the Mandarin in that film is the same reason why his portrayal in this film as the ex-Mandarin works so well, right? He's... It's such a fun foil to have someone who is clearly putting on an act and who is very clearly in way over their heads, accidentally stumbling into something bigger than themselves, but on the other side of it, right? And and I think that it's kind of fun to have him come back here uh, having, you know, sobered up theoretically, though he has gone a little bit crazy. Um, but he, you know, he clearly has taken some time and thought about what he did. And I I think that this was the best way that the film could handle it, right? Given that there was always going to be a certain percentage of fans who felt like the Mandarin from Iron Man 3 was not really the Mandarin, um, allowing Wen Wu to be the original Mandarin and have him kind of be equally frustrated that there was some pretender out there and have that connection come in and bring out in my opinion, the the best of uh, that Kingsley character, uh, I, I thought was a really smart move. I, I think it's a great way to keep fans, uh, to maintain continuity while giving fans who weren't all in on the first issue, uh, the kind of that first creative decision, um, the ability to uh, continue to engage with it well. Um, and he, had, he was really fun in this. I, I think that, you know, having him as a side character for some of these future adventures is very smart because Ben Kingsley is a fun actor that meshes with the Marvel style of humor. And I would be very happy with him continuing to be a thing in other films. I absolutely agree. I, I, I joke, Iron Man 3, it's not a terrible movie. I personally love Iron Man 2 more just because I am a huge, um, a huge fan of, oh my God, I'm forgetting his name. I'm forgetting his name. Mickey Rourke, uh, okay. a big Mickey Rourke fan. So even though his character is pretty mediocre, I just I like watching him. I like watching the presence he has on the on the screen, and I just kind of like the father son story that they tell in Iron Man Two. But this is not an Iron Man Two podcast. Mm. So the, the Trevor Slattery character, I do like how they tie up that loose end of the, he, yeah, the, you know, making fun. He's not really the Mandarin. The real Mandarin finally catches up to him and is like threatening to kill him but keeps him on as like this court gesture that, you know, entertains him and and so on and so forth. But I think the more important part that Kingsley has to play in this movie is that he takes the comedy torch from Simu Liu and from Aquafina 
to allow them to then have the character growth necessary to get us to the end of the movie and to where I assume Marvel wants them to be as not comedy characters, but actual, like, he can be a hero and she can be a hero sidekick and not just crack jokes in a way that I am hopeful that Marvel is planning to do uh, with uh, the Mary Jane and Ned characters in the Spider-Man movies, but we'll see. Um, yeah, I will say, uh, if I was going to give this movie uh, some criticism, I do think that Katie became a really good archer very quickly. Um, archery is not a skill that one just learns overnight, and it would have been more interesting to me either working it into her backstory or having her find uh, a different way to help, right? Showing that there's more than just combat when it comes to helping out in this spot. And instead, she feels a little bit of a deus ex machina point uh, in the kind of final battle scene. I think they could have done a little bit better with her on that, but at the same time, I understand that the arc is that, well, she has to be there, she has to help. And this is the way that people can kind of easily teach her how to help in the uh, that's kind of hidden society that we come to uh, get to know for that last third of the film. Uh, I will say, though, you said the best part of the film. I would argue that the best single scene of the film might be that train fight at the very beginning where the bus gets cut in fucking half. It is such a fun spectacle. Um it felt very tight. Obviously, the uncovering of his powers. We hadn't seen him like fight anything before mm -hmm. that moment. Um, but it's just, to me, when I think of like Chinese martial arts films, that's the kind of scene that I think about. That we've got tight corridors, mm -hmm. multiple enemies. How many different ways can we have these people, you know, bounce off of each other to create something that is engaging? and a spectacle uh, I, I thought it was just really tightly done in a way that, you know, a lot of the other fights you can pull off because CGI allows you to do some cool shit. Correct. But that's one where you had to really work within some confines, and I felt like they brought the most out of it. So, so I completely agree with you, and I think the key aspect of your argument is there what I expect from, like, a martial arts-style movie I absolutely expect that train scene to happen at some point during the movie. And the fact they choose so early on to then transition into like, hey, uh, this guy actually knows how to fight. Isn't just like, uh, doesn't just, uh, isn't just a valet. And now we're going to transition him into his great journey while doing it in front of Katie, who then ends up being, I think, kind of important to the character growth um, in the scene later, uh, you know, uh, towards the end of the movie where they're sitting around the pond and Sean is just like, I've got to kill him. Like, I, I just have to kill him. That's the only way to stop him. Uh, and I think is an important conversation. I think that's why the Kingsley-Trevor Slattery reveal sticks out to me so much is I didn't expect that scene to happen in the movie at all. Not just like I didn't expect the Mandarin to reappear and transition into this, oh, well, really, Zhu Wenwu is the Mandarin and he stole the, the gimmick and everything. It's just it was such a breath of comedic air into the rest of the movie that let those fight scenes stick out a bit more and let the story of loss have some brevity to it. Almost every time Kingsley is on scene, on you know, on stage, it's just for a moment, just to add a little bit of brevity, just to let get a little chuckle out of you, and then we can get back into the seriousness of the actual plot line and the life and death struggle that's going on in these battles. Don't get me wrong, that fight scene. Uh, with uh, with Florian Munzo, which I first was like, is that the Victor Crumb actor? And then upon doing research, nope, he's from Creed 2. Makes sense. Um, I thought it was brilliant. It was so well you know, choreographed, and it gives me a lot of hope for what we are going to see from Shang-Chi going forward, as opposed to what we saw from Iron Fist, which a lot of those fights felt really fake. It yes. felt like it wasn't someone 
doing martial arts it felt like it was much more scripted and choreographed and that they were using wires or, or cgi or something else to make those fights really pop whereas that fight and the fights between Zhu and Wu and Sean felt real, felt like actual martial arts. Um, so I do agree that scene is, is absolutely brilliant, but I think that little treat that they gave us uh, of the Trevor Slattery reveal, just it sticks out just a little bit more to me. But then I think we're both wrong on what scene is the best, because Chase, you mentioned a giant dragon earlier. <laughs> There got, is a giant dragon. That we does got happen. a goddamn kaiju battle in the middle of this thing. That was awesome. I had a lot of fun with it. I, I understand there's going to be a certain percentage of people who go into this with, like, that strong identity of what a, you know, martial arts-type film should look like that's going to look at the kaiju battle and be like, well, Marvel threw their CGI fest in here, and that's not where I was going for. But... If you're here for a Marvel film that happens to have those elements, I gotta tell you, giant monster fights are real fun. It's really well done. I, I thought the monster design for both uh, the dragon and the... Uh, what do they even call the, the evil force there? The Dweller, I think, is the name? The Sounds Dweller right. in Darkness? Um, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's a great example of a, of a thing where, like, you know, all you need to know is there's a giant enemy monster hanging out behind the gate that you definitely shouldn't let open, but absolutely is going to because that's how movies work. And that thing gets to fight a giant badass dragon that our main characters get to assist and help empower. And that's dope. It's fun. It's a really fun scene. Um, I don't... You know, there's a little bit of a, like... It's interesting how it comes together because I don't think the dragon is even mentioned until the last third of the film. So it's not like you're going into it like, oh boy, can't wait for the dragon fight. Mm -hmm. But once you know that it's happening, uh, what they give us, I think, is, is as close to the best version of that as we're going to get. Yeah, I'll, I'll defend the like lack of bringing up the dragon earlier on because we don't even really find out about like what's behind this door until again the last third of the movie uh, when they get to uh, uh, to uh, Tao. Uh, ba -ba -ba -ba. I'm trying to remember. I have it written in my notes here. Tao Lo, um, yes. and that's really where we get all the exposition that makes all of the mysticism kind of make sense. Uh, mm -hmm. is, is the description um, that they're given by their aunt. So I'll hold off judgment on being like, you didn't mention a dragon at the beginning of the movie. I'm never going to be angry about a, a, a dragon <laughs> battling evil monster fight like at all. Like I, I love the Dragonheart movies. I know they're terrible, but it's a dragon. Like, come yeah. on. Um, as we kind of like transition here, I do want to want to talk about the Marvel TV series and, and kind of Marvel uh, Phase Four as a whole because. I don't care what like the executives say. I think from the movie standpoint, this is sort of the start from the movie standpoint of the next phase of what Marvel wants to do going into uh, going into Internals, going into the Spider-Man movie, going forward. How do you, as an origin story, where would you place this? If we're just talking about the movies, let's take out Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Agent Carter, let's take out all that stuff. As an origin story for the movies, where do you kind of rate it? I mean, I think the only origin stories that touch it are Black Panther, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Iron Man. Like, I would put it in that A tier of debuts for the character. Because I think the thing that's really smart about this and that I really appreciate it is you don't need to know anything about the Marvel films for this movie to be good. I honestly would argue that if you were to remove the five, you know, kind of offhanded references to things like the snap uh, and a couple other, uh, you know, just kind of random asides, the movie might be better for it, honestly. Like, the Marvel connection is there, and for people who really love that kind of, uh, you know, universe connection, the, the head canon, uh, and, and finding out how things tie together, like, it's there. 
but it's not what the film is about. And there's a reason that the film, when it comes to flashbacks, it doesn't tie back to anything that's happened in a previous film. It ties back to their mom and them as kids and the relationship that they have with each other, the relationship that Sean had with his dad, the relationship, you know, all of those things. That's what matters. That's the heart of this film. And I feel like any origin story needs to have those elements as the core of its film. Uh, so I, I think it did that very well. I am a little worried as someone who doesn't watch a lot of television that the longer this goes on, the more I'm going to feel like I have to watch the television shows or at least read the Wikipedia pages in order to get everything. I hope that that's not the case. I hope that they recognize that even the most popular television show does not get the same audience that movies do. And as a result, the movies have to stand with TV shows filling in gaps where it is fun and easy to do so rather than as a tool through which this kind of storytelling can happen. Because otherwise we're going to get to a point where things get so bloated that you have the comics problem of people not knowing where to start. And I feel like I can tell anybody, whether you're a big Marvel film or not, go ahead and watch Shang-Chi. It's worth it. Um, I hope that that continues to be true because I think that that's necessary to have a great origin story. And I just, when I look at the Eternals and, you know, the things I've heard about, say, the Loki show or... Uh, Wanderverse, I am concerned that that will not remain true for much longer. Um, I, I gotta be honest, I'm not interested in Eternals at all. Mm. I I haven't I haven't done like a ton of research into it, but nothing about that movie has stuck out to me in a way that's like I would like to watch this movie. Um, maybe that's just because I haven't done the research into like figuring out kind of what the draw is. I think the argument, right, is that the director of the film just won Best Director and Best Picture at last year's Oscars. That's where my selling pitch would start. This is one of the most talented directors in cinema right now, and she decided to do a Marvel film. Um, also, Kumail is ripped, and that's cool if you think he's funny. <laughs> Other than that, I agree with you, though. I think those are the two selling points. And, and how far either of those take you, I think, only goes so far. I mean, the talent is there. Kamel being ripped, I mean, that might that might do it, but I, I don't know. I think that the story aspect of it just doesn't draw me into it. I don't find, like, I don't find this sort of, like, higher power alien race interesting in, in terms of the Avengers. Like, Captain Marvel really didn't hook me in much prior to it coming out and even after watching it i was like yeah, it's like it's a pretty good movie like it's okay I, I i don't know i just feel like a disconnect from the avengers uh and and the marvel cinematic universe in a whole from the sort of like alien superhero a la a superman that you get over in dc um so many of them are are humans that have then been given powers or uh or abilities or just are rich and can build super suits like uh tony stark like they feel just more real in that way where it's humans that are expanded abilities where so much of dc and like eternals is like there are aliens that came here and like have to interact with humanity that's just not interesting to me in the kind of overall plot of the the marvel cinematic universe um, but this and is I think we're going to have the same problem, by the way, with the uh, X-Men film when X-Men finally get reintroduced to the MCU. and Because yeah. we're, we're just going to have to keep explaining why all of these super powerful people never were around in any of the previous films, right? Easy, like, easy this answer. One's, okay. Easy answer. Multiverse. That's not a good answer. I hate that but. answer so much. <laughs> Multiverse. That's not, you can't just say multiverse and fix everything. And I understand that's what they're doing because that's what the, the next Spider-Man film is about. That's what Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is about. That's what Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is likely to be about. But that's not storytelling. That's just like, oh, by the way, here we go. 
can we get to the part that's fun? And it's like, I guess... I... Uh, if you're gonna tell me that I need to care about the story here and how all these pieces fit together, you can't just say multiverse. That can't be the answer, can it? The answer is multiverse. Ah, it's gonna oh, be I'm, so, I'm sorry. Wait, I did that cor- I did that incorrectly. <clears throat> what is multiverse? Unfortunately, I think Survey <laughs> says you're correct on that one, Chief. <laughs> Uh, so you have brought up the uh, the other other Marvel TV shows, which I have actually watched. I watched all three of them. I have not watched the What If series yet, um, because I don't know how. I don't think that really ties into like the Marvel universe as a whole long term. I think it's probably like a really fun series that points out some what ifs, and I think it'll be enjoyable. It is on my list of things to watch. Uh, so when I get to it, whenever we talk about another Marvel movie. Maybe I'll bring it up then. But in regards to the the three Marvel TV shows that have sort of uh, that came out on Disney Plus throughout the course of the pandemic, um, are they must watch TV? Yes and no. Um, I will say yes purely because I think they are very interesting. WandaVision in particular, I think just the idea behind it of using all of these tropes from you know, the history of TV per episode and breaking it down and going from the 50s to the 60s to 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, like just doing that is very interesting. Um, But overall, I think all three of those shows are tie-overs that are to get us from sort of where we ended things at the end of phase three um, with Endgame and carry us into the next group of heroes and giving us a little bit of backstory on why certain people may be missing. I mean, obviously, Tony Stark is dead. Um, Captain America, Steve Rogers, went back in time to return all the stones and decided he wants to stay back, you know, and grow old, so we have to pass that on. And then we need to introduce a big baddie And I don't think any of those shows do anything that is so important that if you don't watch them, you're not going to know where we are when we bring back uh, the next great uh, uh, ensemble movie that Marvel wants to do. I don't think you're necessarily going to miss anything because I think Disney and Marvel are smart enough to understand that not everyone is going to watch all three of these shows unless you really enjoy Marvel. That being said, you are going to miss some little plot points here and there that, you know, maybe maybe it's, you know, like someone like me where I know in past movies I've missed some Easter eggs that they've put in just because I'm not a comic book guy and I don't know all the lore of these characters, um, which is Was fine. there anything in this one out of curiosity? So I don't think there was Easter egg wise that's like hinting at another character or anything. Obviously we get BD Wong um, is in the cage fighting tournament and then the after credit scene they appear and basically invite Shang-Chi into the Avengers and say, keep your phone on you. We'll call you when we need you. Um, Which is humorous. Like that's a good, uh, it's a good cameo. And I, I think like, that's a good crossover with Doctor Strange. But I didn't... I cor- Please correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think the Marvel TV shows had any impact on this film the way that I kind of feel like they're going to have to for either no. the Eternals or any of the multiverse stuff. Uh, so they definitely did not have any impact directly on this movie. Um, they didn't like hint at anything in it. Um, I think overall you are correct. Like WandaVision and Loki definitely a key into some preliminary stuff regarding multiverse and and the future villain that the ensemble casts are going to have to focus on there definitely were some um some little little nuggets here and there that point to stuff that goes on in the kind of doctor strange aspects of things um the book uh being kind of important and then like falcon and winter soldier was yeah we need a new captain america is it is it going to be bucky or is it going to be falcon and uh, they chose Falcon, which I think is the right choice. Mm-hmm. I 
agree with sort of the long-term discussion and rehabilitation of Bucky Barnes in general, but I still think it would be really, really weird to put him in the Captain America suit and give him the shield and be like, yep, he's Captain America now without really having any type of consequences for the sort of evils that he has uh, committed while, you know, while being brainwashed by, uh, uh, by Hydra. Yes. Um, so listen, I would say watch the three. I think they are worthwhile to watch. Um, You don't need to, like, rush out and watch them before Eternals. Uh, If you needed to pick one, I would say probably watch Loki before Eternals. I think that's the one that will probably be the most in tune with what's going on with with Eternals per, like, the plot synopsis I've read. Um, But yeah, like, maybe watch WandaVision before the second Doctor Strange comes out, and then Falcon and Winter Soldier... You just need to watch it before, you know, whatever the next big ensemble movie they do is that's going to pull Captain America into it. Um, they were all fun. If I had to rate the three of them, um, I personally liked WandaVision the most. And then I would go Loki. And then I would go Falcon and Winter Soldier. That's fair. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, theoretically, right, we've got some... Uh future stuff that has been teased that I don't think has a date on it yet. I know Blade was supposed to have a film at one point. There's supposed to be a Deadpool 3, which is involved in the MCU. Um, and there is there is a Captain America sequel that Anthony Mackie has signed on for officially, though. No date attached there. So, you know, I, I think that, like comics, uh, these films, they're not going away anytime soon. You're going to have people kind of phasing in and out. If for no other reason than there are going to be kids that grow up um, that don't have the same connection to like phase one and two because that's just not the age at which they were imbibing cinema, you know? Um, I I do think that if there's one thing I, I hope that they learn from the comics is that every movie is going to be somebody's first Marvel film in the same way that every book is somebody's first attempt to learn more about a specific character. And as long as they do that, then I think even people like me who don't have a lot of room for television in their lives are going to be okay. Um, Shang-Chi seems to get it. We'll see if they continue to uh, to do so. I will say, do we want to talk uh, Ron Tomatoes and box office real quick? Yes, that's sort of how I wanted to uh, to end things with some statistics, because I know that's your jam, Chase. So why don't you uh, why don't you clue us in? Where where are we sitting right now? It is the twenty eighth of September. Uh, where are we sitting in terms of uh, ratings and uh, box office? So as far as ratings goes, uh, it is certified fresh at ninety two percent by Ooh. the critics. That is the fifth highest of any Marvel film. Only Thor, Ragnarok, Avengers Endgame. The original Iron Man and Black Panther got better critic scores. As far as audience scores, it came in at 98%. That is the highest of any Marvel property, including the TV shows that play into the cinematic universe. Okay. Um, It's legit. Uh, And I give a lot of credit to, um, you know, uh, the the, uh, work that you know, Dustin Daniel Credden and, and a lot of these screenwriters did to create something that people could uh, could all get behind um, that managed to be very authentic to the world that it was trying to capture while being incredibly accessible. Um, as far as box office goes, uh, it debuted uh, with 75 million uh, when it came to opening weekend. Uh, that is, given where COVID is at, I think pretty impressive. It wasn't quite as good as Black Widow's opening weekend, but it did smash records for Labor Day weekend, which is typically seen as a kind of dead zone for a lot of cinemas, where you kind of put out the almost the, the kind of equivalent of shovelware, so to speak. So it set a lot of records with that, and it has already, uh, just a few weeks later, out-earned Black Widow with $196 million at the box office. Um, it will climb a little bit more than that. I don't expect it to go 
too much farther just because we still live in a world in which COVID is a thing that happens. And uh, there's such a wide variety of uh, responses and vaccination rates across the world. I think there's always going to be a little bit of a, a gap. But I mean, I, I think to put it uh, in some terms that, that uh, are easier to quantify for the long run, this movie did so well that Disney agreed for all of the Marvel films moving forward to get some exclusive time in theater rather than doing the joint release with their streaming product the way that they did with Black Widow and Shang-Chi. They're like, no, this is successful enough. We're making enough money just doing it the old-fashioned way. Even with all of the difficulties that movies as a whole are having, um, I think that says a lot. Uh, I think it says a lot about uh, how much people are willing to come out for fresh characters that do something different, uh, how representation, despite all of those people in the worst corners of the internet talking about how Shang-Chi was going to be a flop, uh, absolutely did not. I, I think there's a lot to look at that's very promising in its performance, especially given that its budget was uh, a little bit lower than uh, a lot of even the Phase 3 films were, just because Marvel understands that with new characters, maybe pull it back a little bit and see how it does. Um, Disney's good at that whole making money thing, Walter. I'm not sure if you know this, but they're pretty good at it. I mean, pretty you wouldn't have been able to buy Marvel and Lucasfilms within like a 10-year span if you didn't know how to make money. Yeah. It's, I mean, they've got their money machine, and as much as... Uh, I don't like Disney the entity. I sure do love these Marvel films. And I, I will say this. I give Shang-Chi a lot of credit because I was almost out on Marvel stuff just because of how much of a barrier I felt some of this Disney Plus stuff becoming canon would be. And I, I think I'm back in. I'm very excited now for Eternals, actually. And I'm excited to go back and watch Black Widow now that it's out on DVD, which we may go back and talk about, right? I think. Well, well, thanks for spoiling the next episode there, Chase. <laughs> I had this whole long monologue where I was going to just, like, tease, like, oh, you know, I, I had nothing to tease it. I was legitimately just going to say, we're going to see you in two weeks when we talk about Black Widow and uh I'll save my I'll save my Black Widow thoughts for that because like I think there's a reason, uh, at least there's a reason for me why I didn't go see it in theaters or I didn't want to pay the twenty five dollars to see it you know premiere on Disney Plus you know so on and so forth. Uh, but Chase, I think I think to end the podcast here right before we get into the you know nitty gritty where you can find us stuff. What do you think? Like nine and a half rings out of ten. I would say, yeah, I think this is a 9 out of 10 film for me. Uh, it's not to say that it's perfect, because very few things are. But within what it's trying to do, I think it did everything I wanted it to, and a little bit more. Um, I really enjoyed it. Like I said, I put this in the top percentile of Marvel uh, origin movies. And I'm very excited for Shang-Chi 2. I want to see this crew come back. I cannot wait. We didn't talk about the post credit scene. Um, I understand there are people who criticize the number of secret shadow organizations that the Marvel Cinematic Universe now has, <laughs> and they're not wrong, but I sure do want to see Xi Ling's version because I, that was a very fun moment in the post credit scene of like, of course she's not going away. Of course she's not just going to go back to what she used to do. I want to see her as a kingpin type and see how that uh, continues to play out in some really interesting family dynamics for Sean. So I am, I'm in, I liked it, and I can't wait to see more from this character. Absolutely. I'm very excited to see how they tie uh, Shang-Chi sort of into the larger cinematic universe. I can't wait for like him to get to joke around with Peter Parker and just like just like be himself and then everybody's like, alright, like what do you do? 
and he like pulls out these rings and they're like you wear jewelry and then he you know kicks some ass so i'm very excited to see where they go uh forward with the property and kind of tie everything else together um this was kind of my first interaction with aquafina as a as an actor so i really enjoyed what she did i'm kind of tempted to go back and watch some of her stand-up stuff and just see you know what else she's been in just to get a little bit more of a taste um but with that being said yes we should see you guys in like two weeks i think we kind of if we're gonna keep doing this we're gonna keep doing it you know every two weeks i know we have black widow picked out for the next episode and i'm pretty sure we have agreed on uh, what the third episode is going to be although uh some recent comments may have changed what that decision is going to be uh chase oh boy <laughs> i'm not up to date on who uh who did what so that's good what could go wrong? I foresee no negative consequences. <laughs> but Chase, where can the good folks at home find you? Ah, uh, you can find me at Chase Wassenaar on Twitter. Please tell me uh, why my opinions are dumb and stupid, or better, uh, if you would like to tell me uh, if there are any uh, cameo things that we missed, any questions you'd like us to answer on the next pod. Uh, I genuinely enjoy shooting the shit with people on films like this, so uh, you can find me there. Absolutely. Uh, you guys can find me at C80s underscore LOL. Uh, again, I talk about a large variety of stuff on there, uh, be it movies, be it esports, be it wrestling, be it politics, although maybe we'll stay away from the politics for now. Uh, and uh, I think the Rough Dress Pod Twitter is going to get back in use, at least to post this stuff. Uh, so please go follow it there, at Rough Dress Pod on Twitter. I don't remember the handles for all the other stuff. I got, I got to go back and find it. It'll be in a description or something down below. Uh, but we will see you all in approximately two weeks for Black Widow. And until then, goodbye, internet.